Thank you for joining us for Listen NGI Endoscopy. Throughout the series, Dr. Jonathan Buscalia hosts world-renowned expert clinicians to discuss the latest developments in gastroenterology-based diseases and the use of GI endoscopy in their diagnosis and management. This podcast is brought to you by the American Society for Gastrointestinal Endoscopy, home to more than 14,000 members worldwide and the leading voice for GI endoscopy. We thank our sponsor, Cook Medical, for making this series possible. Welcome back to the podcast, listeners. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Viscalia, and I'm a professor of medicine in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at Stony Brook University on Long Island. And this month, I'm pleased to be talking with our guest, Dr. Nina Abraham. Dr. Abraham is a professor of medicine in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at Mayo Clinic Scottsdale, Arizona, and also within the Division of Healthcare Policy and Research. Dr. Abraham is the medical director of the Cardiogastroenterology Clinic at Mayo Clinic, Arizona. And our topic today is the management of patients on anticoagulants and antiplatelet agents in the periendoscopic period of time. So Nina, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Great to be here with you. It's great to talk to you. I've uh, watched your career for many years and you've always been a huge source of referral for me in the literature in terms of what to do you know, with my own patients who are on antithrombotic agents and how to manage these sort of difficult situations. Um, so I'm really pleased to talk with you today. Um, a lot of things I want to hit and go over. I really want to concentrate on the, the elective uh, procedures, you know, the outpatient ambulatory procedures. I think that there's a lot of stuff we can talk about in the inpatient world, but I think it becomes, although you know way better than me, a little muddy um, in terms of all the factors that are at play in the inpatient world at times. So I want to talk to you, if you don't mind, a little bit about that patient that's coming to us electively for an endoscopic procedure on anticoagulants or antiplatelets, if that's okay. That sounds great. Okay. So as we frequently do on the podcast, we'll start off with a classic case scenario. This would be a classic one, at least for me. Uh, A perfect example here would be a 59-year-old man who is coming to me for a surveillance colonoscopy. He's a bit overdue. He was supposed to come back a year ago. Um, but, uh, but he came back uh, a little bit late and uh, he had an MI, uh, about 10 months ago, uh, had a bare metal stent placed. Um, he's now on aspirin and Plavix therapy, and he wasn't on this prior when he had his first colonoscopy with me in his early fifties. So what are your thoughts? How do we approach this patient? Um, what are you doing? Uh, what do we need to be concerned about? What are the things we need to be thinking about in terms of managing his, uh, his antithrombotic therapy? Well, Jonathan, that's a perfect first case to start with because <laughs> I think that's often the bread and butter for a lot of us. And uh, it's probably entry-level cardio GI, but a, a spot where people get tripped up. Okay, good. Uh, the first thing to remember about elective endoscopy is do no harm. And it's really important that gastroenterologists know which patients, which cardiac patients are experienced are at extremely high risk of uh, thromboembolism and defer elective exam until that patient is no longer high risk. So let's first co- just sort of cover who is high risk. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
These are patients who are less than three months out from transient ischemic attack, stroke, lower extremity, deep vein thrombosis, pulmonary embolism, and acute coronary syndrome. So your patient's outside of that window at 10 months. Now, in patients who have had PTCA and percutaneous coronary intervention with a stent put in, the time periods are a little longer, so you need to know what they are. If they had a drug-eluting stent, uh, the first six months are really the most critical time to avoid monkeying around or modifying the dual antiplatelet therapy because there's a higher risk of stent thrombosis. Similarly, if the patient had a bare metal stent, it's within the first four weeks. Now, your patient had an acute coronary syndrome, plus I'm assuming a drug-eluting stent placed. Um, yeah, I think, so, I, said, I think I said bare oh, metal. Oh, bare metal, okay. Yeah. But the acute coronary syndrome puts them in yet another higher risk category. So yeah. really six months is, now, is the time period. Now, and then finally, as acute coronary syndrome plus bare metal stent would be within two months. Okay. Now, did this change? I remember um, it was, it seemed to be a pretty hard and fast one year yes. with a drug eluding stent. Did that change recently? Yes. There have been a couple of very important clinical trials in the cardiology literature, which uh, demonstrated that really it was the first six months after ACS event where that patient was most at risk. Uh, the WOWIST trial was the first one. And since then, there have been some others. And so, the, so actually the American College of Cardiology guidelines have been modified to okay. uh, shorten the time period with the, uh, of course, acknowledgement because guidelines are an imperfect uh, science right. uh, that says, you know, at a minimum, six months of dual antiplatelet therapy after acute coronary syndrome with uh, PCI, but may be necessary up to 12 months. So I think if, if clinicians remember that um, six month marker for post ACS, they'll be in good shape. Uh, with a bare metal stent that adds a little bit more flavor to your, to your patient because you could shorten that period. Right. Right. And I think in your case, if I recall, you said the polyp was one centimeter in size. Well, like, I didn't. Uh, <laughs> oh, you don't know. Okay. I didn't. But it's probably likely he has a polyp one centimeter in size okay. because he has a history of polyps. And we'll say that they were a little bit large last time we scoped. OK, them. so yeah. I mean, what that brings to light is the fact that there is no cut and dry when right. it comes to a cardiac right. patient. Uh, I get moans and groans every time I present this topic at an ASCE meeting <laughs> because people want a recipe. Right. And this 2022 guideline that was just published in April really emphasizes two things. Number one, this is a principle-based guideline that uh, highlights the latest literature after a very rigorous two-year process using the grade methodology. And secondly, one of the classic Abrahamisms, there is no tug of war between the heart and the GI tract. The yeah, heart, the heart, always, heart wins. always wins. Yeah. The heart always yeah. wins. So yeah. in this case, to get back to your particular patient, if there's any concern that they have a very large polyp, that of course increases the risk of concern of malignant transformation for the gastroenterologist. But 
Uh, and then you might be able to shorten that six month period of time, right. you know, for elective right. endoscopy. Right. But I'll be, I'll, I'll be sure to tell you that a lot of cardiologists don't really understand all of this either. I'm, I'm actually quite surprised. So just to clarify, when you say the guidelines, you're referring to the ones that were published this year uh, by the American College of Gastroenterology with the Canadian Association of Gastroenterology? That, that is correct. Yeah, so think, you know, this is my eighth guideline I've participated yeah. in, and so, probably the most rigorous one we've ever produced. Yeah, so for the listeners, you may want to check this out. Dr. Abraham is a lead author on this, and it was published in, uh, in the American Journal of Gastro, I think in April, if I remember correctly. Yes. Um, so check and, that and, it, and, and if you're still using that 2016 ASGE guideline, yeah. it's important that you read the update because there has been incredibly important literature released since that 2016 yeah. guideline, which was produced in 2015. Got it. Wolitz trial and the trials uh, that we were just referencing are good examples of the new changes. Okay. Okay, so you have your patient and, you know, your antenna went up a little bit because he told you that he had a stent placed somewhere within the past year. So you did your due diligence, you checked it out, you said, okay, this was a bare metal stent, but we're within the appropriate window at this point in time. I think it was 10 months ago, we said, Um, and he hadn't, he hadn't had his acute coronary uh, event in in many months now. And you, and you're, you're comfortable moving on to doing your elective uh, colonoscopy at this point. But you're left with the fact that the patient is on Plavix and aspirin. So where are we at that point? So the actual pre-procedural and post-procedural management of the patient at this point, mm-hmm. you know, now that they're out of that super high-risk period, is the same as it was in 2016. Okay. You're going to want to maintain the patient on their cardiac aspirin of 81 milligrams per day because that cardiac aspirin in trials is actually the most important uh, medicine for them to maintain. And you want to temporarily interrupt the Plavix uh, before the procedure. And the time periods of interruption are a little different than 2016 based on, again, on studies that have been submitted to the FDA. So for clopidogrel, it would be five days. Okay. A lot of people were holding it for seven. Right. Seven days is only necessary for prazogrel. Okay. But for clopidogrel and ticagrelor, five days is all you need. Okay. You do your procedure, you deal with any polyps that are there. And then once you are, have assured immediate hemostasis, you restart the plavix, the clopidogrel. Okay. Okay. Now, this brings me to, I think, an important point that I want to touch upon, and that is not all polyps are the same, not all procedures are the same. And I noticed um, in another uh, great publication that you that you senior authored, uh, which was also um, put out earlier this year on the management of patients on anticoagulants and antiplatelets, um, you talk a lot about, and this has been done, I know the ASGE has done this in their guidelines over the years, sort of breaking down um, our procedures into low risk procedures yeah. and what are more high or medium risk procedures. So could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, you know, that that is actually a really interesting topic and we should probably have a separate podcast altogether (laughs) for a great debate if you if you want an idea because uh at the beginning the absolute beginning of this guideline process for this 2022 guideline we did a a 
pretty good deep dive into the risks of procedures because when we were developing our PICO questions, population intervention comparator outcome, which is the framework for all grade guidelines, we wanted to know if we should or could do a subsection on the um, risk, post-procedural bleeding risk of procedures. And you know, what's the take home message? The data is terrible. <laughs> Absolutely terrible. I mean, at best, endoscopy literature tends to be a little on the weaker side, even the most rigorous endoscopy literature when you compare it to the cardiology literature. Yeah. But yeah. our procedural risk of bleeding literature is particularly poor. And when I went back to look at the 2016 ASD guideline, which I had the privilege of participating in as a senior author as well, what I noticed was that the classification of high versus low was based on a lot of really poor studies that would have never have made the mark for a grade assessment or a lot of systematic reviews. So a lot of experiential data, right? As opposed to evidence-based data. That being said, I think it is important to have at least a general gist of what is high versus low risk sure. because there is definitely some procedures which we know have a very high post-procedural bleeding risk. These are things like wide, wide, wide field EMRs, ESDs, EUS with FNA, ERCP with sphincterotomy or uh, of any kind, biliary or pancreatic, uh, POEMs, which are now more common than they right. were back in right. 2016, treatment of varices, uh, therapeutic balloon-assisted enteroscopy. And we, we know that the post-procedural bleeding risk of these patients in the absence of antiplatelet and anticoagulant use is greater than 2%. Okay. And so if you just extrapolate what we know about patients who have bleeding risk on those drugs at all, it ranges from 4 to 11%, depending on their other comorbidities and their nice. age. So those patients who are going to be undergoing those types of elective procedures, you definitely want to think about temporary yeah, interruption. Yeah, yeah. What is less clear and is what do you do for those polyps that are less than a centimeter in size, which right. have classically been characterized as having a bleeding risk, less post-procedural bleeding risk, less than 2% in the absence of antiplatelet and anticoagulant. Mm -hmm. In the presence of antiplatelet and anticoagulant from the literature, that risk is around three and a half to 4%, okay? So in the, the data would support putting those procedures in the low risk category. So colonoscopy with small diminutive polypectomy resections, as well as you know, with and without biopsy. Right. So uh, in those patients, you could, uh, for dual antiplatelet therapy, you would probably still do the same thing because you're probably in an open access endoscopy world. Mm. So you're, you don't know what's gonna come in the door. And it's more important for that cardiac patient to have a one and done procedure because you, what you don't wanna do is flip them on and off their, their, their um, cardiac drugs. So you're saying that typically um, you would do what you said before, which is maintain the aspirin therapy, but yeah. hold the Plavix? Correct. For, okay. And I think, you know, I think that's the, pol that's the policy at Mayo Clinic for yeah. open access endoscopy. And yeah. I think it makes sense yeah. for, for colonoscopies 
even in the private practice setting, yeah. because my, I think all of us are now of the mindset that we should be removing polyps, regardless of size. And you want to give that patient the full advantage to have the polyp removed, regardless of how big or small it might be. In the old days, we used to say, do it on drugs. And then if you see a large polyp, put a yeah. to come back, do remove the larger polyp. Right. But I'm not sure that's the best strategy for that cardiac patient. It's subjective. Right. And, and, and it, the second visit, the second prep, et cetera. Right. And the difference now, and we can, we can get into this a little bit, but the difference now is that we have much better strategies, which, you know, allow us to, um, possibly prevent the risk of post-procedural bleeding Absolutely. with clipping devices and other things like that. Absolutely. So we can, um, before we go on, I just want to pause for a moment and I just want to thank our sponsor, Cook Medical. Uh, Cook is a sponsor of this ASGE Listen In podcast since its inception. And we're very appreciative uh, to them for sponsoring us and their dedication to innovation and GI endoscopy. Thank you again, as always, Cook. So you know, it, Jonathan, if I might add something yeah, to that, just yeah. that discussion, um, the most obvious and most common question I get when I recommend this and, what, and when people read this in the new guidelines, mm-hmm. is, and even in the 2016 guidelines, well, shouldn't we just keep the patients on dual antiplatelet therapy? Because mm-hmm. we don't know what size the polyps are. And even if it's, you know, in the absence of clipping, couldn't right. we still just take the polyp off? and see what happens because the heart, you say the heart always wins over the GI tract. Right. It's a good question. Uh, And I think that question became more topical and relevant after the CUP trial, continuous uninterrupted uh, Plavex trial, clopidogrel trial from uh, Chan and group in Hong Kong. Okay. But when you look at that, uh, that study, as well as some other subsequent studies, the data now shows that the post polypectomy bleeding rate for patients in whom the phenopyridine, the, cla- yeah. the plavix, plavix is interrupted yeah. while yeah. continuing the aspirin versus those who had uninterrupted is actually the same. Yeah. It's very similar. It's not statistically significant, yeah. not clinically significant. Now, do you think though, do you think that hot versus cold polypectomy matters in that scenario? And I know that's yeah. a loaded question. because Yeah, uh, I will get to that because I think that is the next, <laughs> the next big thing. Yeah. But, but where I want to point out the difference when you look at that data in its cumulative um, way is that there's actually a trend to fewer thromboembolic events if you interrupt the thenopurity. And people say, wait, that doesn't make sense. Right. It, it actually does because what is happening there is I, people are getting the patients back on their thenopurity more quickly mm-hmm. than if um, if they had um, continued the phenopyridine because often the, with the post polypectomy bleeding rate, that, that then there's a discontinuation yeah. and a, a longer yeah. period of time. Yeah, stay, yeah, stay yeah let's yeah. hold your plavix for four days while we yeah, let this heal. It's, it's that whole knee jerk reaction. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting. So that, uh, Temporary interruption of athenopyridine with continuation of aspirin is still the safest way to go. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the question comes up, does technique matter? 
Right. Yeah. So, so I think it's, I think it's well known in the literature, right. That the, you know, larger polyps, polyps that are two to four centimeters in size that you're going to do a piecemeal EMR in, or certainly, certainly if you're going to do any kind of ESD, that you're going to be encountering a higher risk of bleeding. Um, is there good quality data that says, uh, or are there good quality data that says that there's a group of patients with specific risk factors that we should really be, you know, thinking about using clips on post polypectomy. Yes, uh, you will probably remember that two or three years ago in gastro, there was three or four papers that were trials that yep. were published in rapid sequence yeah. on this topic, but they were not in patients uniquely on antithrombotic drugs, and often the sub cohort of those uh, patients was just not large enough sample size to give you a meaningful response or the control of the confounders wasn't great. Mm -hmm. But since that time has evolved, there have been more studies that mm -hmm. have been published so that you are able to get a pooled estimate mm -hmm. of the risk of uh, clipping versus prophylactic clipping versus not pro with a, or the absence of prophylactic clipping in patients specifically on antiplatelets and anticoagulants. And what you do see is two themes that were suggested in the earlier trials that have become, the signals become way more clear. Mm -hmm. Size matters, you know, uh, two centimeters or greater is definitely, uh, a, you know, don't think twice, do it kind mm -hmm. of situation. Uh, but some of the earlier trials used one centimeter. So it could be argued that you could lower that range to one centimeter. And I certainly do in my own practice. And then the second thing is, uh, location matters. The yep. right-sided lesions still seem to bleed more than the left-sided lesions. Now, uh, I don't understand the biological rationale for that. And I've asked a lot of our leaders in colonoscopy and polypectomy, polypectomy that question, and have not really gotten a satisfactory answer to why right. that happens. So being an epidemiologist myself, I'm like, Hmm, I wonder if that's just a variable that they didn't control for. So what I do in my own personal practice, because I see a lot of these patients, is I, uh, I clip any lesion that's greater than one centimeter because the heart always wins over the GI tract. Right. It's more important for me to get, and more important for that patient to get immediate hemostasis, lock it down so you can restart that Plavix or right. that uh, phenopyridine immediately. Yeah. Yeah. And we're starting to see, and it's getting off topic and I just, you know, I'm starting to see more and more closure devices that are being geared towards the everyday, uh, I use this term, everyday advanced endoscopist, uh, you know, that, you know, new devices uh, other than just clips that we can start to use because it is sometimes difficult when you remove a, you know, a three to four centimeter lesion in the ascending colon, and you have to put that patient back on their, their, um, you know, their anticoagulant of some nature, whether it be an antiplatelet agent or sorry, an antiplatelet agent or um, an anticoagulant. And, you know, you, you're, it's sometimes difficult to get seven, eight clips, uh, you know, around a lesion that's spanning, you know, a fold or two. And so I, I, I personally have found it to be nice that some of these newer devices are going to start to come into the mix more and that, you know, the average person can use them when they're, when they're doing a good size EMR. Yeah. And um, technical proficiency has been shown to be the real Achilles heel with yeah. the early studies on clip yeah. closure. It's not just 
whether or not you approximate the fold and really seal it up, but also there's a cost effectiveness question that comes into play. Yes. Uh, there was a really important study published, uh, abstract published at DDW uh, two years ago, pre-pandemic, 2019, yeah. <laughs> uh, the last big DDW before the pandemic, and, yeah. uh, by Jessica Yu, that really showed that the cost effectiveness of clips in a patient on antiplatelets and anticoagulants for the prevention of a post-polypectomy bleed was about $11,000 per patient. Wow. Which is a lot. Yeah. But where does that strategy show cost effectiveness? If the clip technology costs $183 per clip. And that and the base case in Dr. Yu's assessment was uh, study was assuming that three or four clips would be necessary right. to appropriately approximate. Because if you just put one clip on yeah. that and you've got wings that are open, yeah, that patient's going to bleed. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, let's we we have a few minutes, and I just want to hit a couple of important topics. We didn't talk about, but I, I, I briefly want to get your your thoughts on this. Is you know DOAX, you know direct. Yeah oral acting anticoagulants or direct oral anticoagulants. So uh, approach for them, generally speaking, you know, we talked yeah. about the thiol. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. So the DOAC management has changed since 2015, 2016. So this is important to know. Uh, so for patients who are on DOACs who are undergoing elective planned endoscopic procedures, you should be temporarily interrupting the DOAC rather than continuing the DOAC. Mm. Although I will acknowledge the published GI literature is limited by uh, all the things that usually plague GI endoscopic literature, lack of adjustment, limited sample sizes, mm -hmm. diversity of GI procedure types and endoscopic techniques uh, and variable protocols for DOAC interruption. And I think that's because in the old days and back in 2015, we said, you know, interrupt the drug, but it should be based on creatinine clearance. Right, right. Now, uh, with the assumption that the worse the creatinine clearance, the longer, the longer you hold it. Yeah. That has completely changed based on the PAUSE study. Now, the, for those of you who are not familiar with the PAUSE cohort study, this is the perioperative anticoagulation used for surgery evaluation study. It was uh, involved th over 3,000 patients from 23 clinical centers in Canada, the US, and Europe, and they were all atrial fibrillation patients on direct oral anticoagulants and all of the ones that are currently available. Now, they used the bridge trial classification for high versus low risk post procedural bleeding. And in that situation, GI, routine GI procedures were classified as low risk. So the standardized protocol for temporary interruption and resumption was the same for all of those GI procedures. Patients held their DOAC the day before the procedure and then the day of procedure with resumption of the DOAC the day after, okay? Mm. And with that, they had a very low risk of thromboembolism, uh, less than 1%, mm -hmm. and a very low risk of post-procedural bleeding, less than 2%. Now, we were very fortunate on our guideline panel to have the primary author and hemostasis guru, Jim, Jim Ducatus from McMaster on our panel. And he very kindly allowed Alan Barkin, who was the primary author by a co-primary author from Canada to look at all that raw GI data because we wanted to see what would it be in GI only, right? Instead yeah. of extrapolation to the whole low risk group. 
Uh, and so we have analyzed that data and it was actually presented at DDW and it is now under final revision with a major GI journal. So this is the post hoc analysis of the GI data from the PAUSE trial, which would make it the biggest study in the GI population. And and and, and, it, and it's and to clarify, it's it's consistent, meaning that a day yeah, is a day is okay. Exactly. Yeah, well, it's the day before, day before and the yeah. day of. So yeah. for most procedures, you're holding the DOAC only for two days. Right. Now, when you dig and now most in the pause GI data, these were mostly EGDs and colonoscopies with and without biopsy or polypectomy. There are very few advanced procedures. There were some ERCPs and sphincterotomies sprinkled in, but not really enough to comment on that. Mm. So how do I operationalize this in real life? For most of our screening colonoscopy population, most of our inpatient population, I'm holding the DOAC. I would recommend holding the DOAC for two days, the day before the day of resuming the next day. But if you know you're going to do an ERCP with sphincterotomy, an EUS with FNA, and you know one of those higher risk procedures, mm. it would be appropriate to hold it for three days. So two days in advance plus the day plus of the, the day. procedure, yeah. and then resume the day after. Yeah. That, Ameri- that's that's nice. I mean, that definitely simplifies things. Way more. I, 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 I would. Up until recently, you know, I, I would have my actually my ASGE guideline bulletin boarded to my office, and I would look up the creatinine clearance of the you know the patient, and then we would match it up with you know what whatever drug they were on, whatever DOAC they were on. So that definitely makes it simpler. Yeah. That that I think is going to make it a lot more user friendly and less scary for for yeah. physicians and GI and endoscopists to manage. Yeah. Because what I hate to see is gastroenterologists deferring these decisions to cardiologists. Why? Because most of the time, the cardiologists don't make the right choice because they're not <laughs> up to date on their own guidelines, which are consistent with many of our recommendations. So we need to own this. Should, should we be in any way instituting low-dose aspirin and any DOAC patients that we hold? There's no not need for Not at that. all. Absolutely okay. no indication for doing okay. that. And listen, I know that we have limited time, but I really got to get your two cents on this. And I know there's data building, so I don't expect a, a, a well put together answer on this. But you touched upon cold versus hot yeah. uh, polypectomy. And, um, you know, uh, I think there's pretty good data on, you know, without um, anti anti-platelet uh, or anticoagulants. But where do you think this is heading uh, for the patients that need to go back on their anticoagulants yeah. or their antiplatelet therapies. I think your assessment of the situation is 100% on the <laughs> uh, If the patient is not on an antithrombotic of any type, uh, definitely for diminutive lesions, I yeah. am all on, all on board with cold, right, cold. polypectomy techniques. Right. The problem is the data in patients on these drugs is really poor and now still shows increased bleeding. Yeah. So um, I'm not a big fan and I don't do that okay. in, in my patients. Good to know. Good to know. Listen, this has been fantastic, Nina. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing your your thoughts. I as, as I told you at DDW this year when I caught you for a quick second, I always enjoy listening to you speak and and listening to your um, opinions on this stuff. It's really it's really enlightening. And I think I hope I'm sure our listeners will feel the same. So thank you so much. Thank you, Jonathan, and thanks to the ASG for inviting me to join you today. You're very welcome. Thank you, listeners. We'll uh, hear from you or you'll hear from us next time on the ASG podcast. Listen in. Thank you so much. 
Thank you again for joining us and to our sponsor, Cook Medical. You can find the full series at ASGE.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.